Jesus for president. Jesus for president. That's what the sign said. I saw it when I was going for a run during a particularly contentious election season. I don't even need to say which one it is because aren't they all? And in every yard that I passed, there was either a red sign or a blue sign with one person's last name or another person's last name. Now, I've always found political yard signs to be uh, rather problematic. I mean, why do we put them up? It's a funny thing. I think we put them up because we want to encourage people to change their vote. Has anyone ever changed who they voted for because you saw a sign in someone's yard? I think the reason we actually do that, the reason we put those signs in our yards, we attach names to our bumper stickers, that we, we post about these sorts of things on Facebook, is not because we want to change anybody. It's because we want people to know where we stand. We want people to know whose side we're on. So seeing yard signs during an election season is a, is a fairly normative event. In fact, it's usually the houses without signs that we find to be strange until that day that I was running and I saw Jesus for president. I was so shocked, I almost tripped over my feet and wiped out on the sidewalk because I, I couldn't believe it. Jesus for president. Now, someone perhaps thought it would be fitting to cut through the political paraphernalia of that year with some sort of prophetic pronouncement, maybe. That person really thought that Jesus being in the Oval Office would, would be a good idea. Except, take up your cross, it doesn't pull very well. Turn the other cheek? I don't think that really works as a campaign slogan. And that's not even mentioning the first will be last and the last will be first. That doesn't sound like a milk toast soundbite from a politician. You know what it sounds like? A threat. Jesus for president. Let me be the first to tell you, it could never work. You want to know why? Because he's already our king. Jesus is Lord. It's Christ the King Sunday. As I mentioned, this is the end of the liturgical calendar. It's this remarkable opportunity for us to witness to the Lordship of Christ. And yet, in terms of liturgical observances, this is a very recent one, all things considered. Now, we've been marking Easter for millennia. We've been celebrating Christmas for centuries. But Christ the King Sunday, the first time we ever celebrated this as a church was almost 100 years ago. It was 1925. Now, why? Why did Christ the King Sunday start in 1925? The Pope at the time, his name was Pope Pius XI. And in 1925, he looked out at the world and he saw that Mussolini had been in charge of Italy for three years. A rabble-rouser named Adolf Hitler had just gotten out of prison and published his autobiographical memoir called Mein Kampf. And all of that economic frivolity that was going to lead to the Great Depression, it was in full effect. And so the Pope looks out at the world and he says, you know what we need? We need to remember that Jesus Christ is king. And that no matter who springs up in leadership, no matter what happens to the world, it is to him and to him alone that we owe our allegiance. And so the Pope decreed, this is how we're going to end the year. Every year from now on, we're going to remember that Jesus Christ is king. Now, since last year, we've gone from Genesis to Revelation. We've encountered the living God who encounters us. We've been transformed by the Lord who transforms things like bread and cup and water and all of it. All the Sundays, all the studies, all the sacraments, all the sermons, all of them have pointed to one thing and only one thing. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the thing about us Christians. Everything starts with Jesus. Everything ends with Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 
One of my professors in seminary liked to say, Jesus Christ is Lord and everything else is baloney. Except he didn't say baloney. Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet, we do well to remember that this king of ours is really weird. Very strange. There's a man named Jesus. He hails from the town of Nazareth. Poor, no real standing in the world, but he preaches about this thing called the kingdom of God, and he draws a pretty big crowd. For centuries, the people of Israel, they had suffered hardship after hardship, persecution after persecution. They were waiting for the one who was promised, and Jesus says, I am he. Signs and wonders are done. Healings happen. Bellies are filled. The crowds grow until they don't. Because at some point, the more he talked, the more he was rejected. The more he did, the more people grumbled. Eventually, he was betrayed, arrested, and condemned to death by us. Now, those two words are the hinge on pitch upon which the kingdom works. The condemned and beaten and hung by us. It's so hard to admit that that's true, but it is. At the heart of the Christian witness is the fact that when push comes to shove, we nail God's Son to the cross. That's why every Good Friday we sing that awful hymn, Ah, Holy Jesus, I it was denied thee, I crucified thee. I know people who will not dare go to church on Good Friday because they don't want to say those words. But they're true. This great moment in the Gospels, I love this, you know, Jesus has been arrested, he's been betrayed, and, and Pontius Pilate recognizes he's got a political opportunity. He's got another man named Barabbas, who's an insurrectionist, and he's got Jesus, the son of a carpenter. And so he, he goes to the crowds, and he says, we're going to have um, a moment of democracy. I'm going to let you vote. Who do you want to save? Do you want to pick Barabbas, or do you want to pick Jesus? And who do we pick? Barabbas. We must be always careful and mindful of what it is we're doing when we vote, because we always get the politicians we deserve. That's for another Sunday. He is arrested. He is beaten. He is betrayed. The soldiers, they take a purple robe and they place it on his shoulders. They're mocking him, this so-called king of the Jews. They take a crown, not of gold, but a crown of thorns. And they place it on his head. And they take a cross. And they tell him to carry it up to a place called the Skull which is where they will kill him. And it's strange how painfully quiet Jesus is in this moment in the Gospels. The gifted preacher, parable teller, he has no words left to share. The crowds, of course, are loud. They are sick with anticipation. They are hungry for blood. And they nail him to the cross. And it's only here, as he is hung up high for everyone to see, does Jesus speak his first words as king. And make no mistake about it, he is king in this moment hanging high on the throne that is the cross. And what is his first pronouncement as king over all creation? What's the first thing Jesus does as king? He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. With all the possible words of recrimination, condemnation, accusation, the first thing he says is forgiveness. Earlier, Jesus commanded us to forgive our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. It's easy to preach and hard to practice. On the cross, Jesus dares to pray for his very worst enemies, us. It's so strange how God unites forgiveness with ignorance. We usually act and behave as if ignorance is the enemy of forgiveness. We want people to know they're wrong before we forgive them. 
We want them to repent before we offer them mercy. And yet God in Christ is always offering preemptive forgiveness. Forgiveness first. It is the first word. Jesus doesn't hang around on the cross until we realize we've made a mistake. He doesn't wait till someone in the crowd shouts, um, Hey, do you think we maybe went a little too far this time? Sorry, Jesus. Jesus doesn't offer forgiveness after we come to our senses, but in the thick of our badness, he offers his goodness. Forgiveness is what it costs God to be with people like us, who every time God offers something to us, we reject it. We have perfection in the garden in the beginning of Genesis, and we reject it for a little taste of knowledge that hangs from a tree. We have unified community, and what do we do? We decide to build a giant tower because we want to be like God, and we reject what God does in favor of our own hopes and dreams. God offers to be in covenant with us, forever remaining to be our God, and we reject it in favor of other, other gods, other bits of idolatry. The story of the Bible is the story of our rebellion, our selfishness, our own wanton disregard for what is good for us and others. We worship at the altars of other gods over and over again. And then, in the midst of all the muck and the mire, God comes in the flesh, born as a baby. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, comes to make all things new with promises of hope and grace and mercy. God looks at all of our misery, our pitiful existence. God attaches God's self to us. And what happens? We nail God to the cross. And then for us, with, with, with all that we have, all of our power, all of our prestige, all of our sin and selfishness, what happens? We get forgiven. The first word from the cross, the first word from the throne is forgiveness. It's strange. But then again, it shouldn't be so strange to our ears, even though it's the strangest thing that's ever happened in the history of the cosmos, because Jesus was forever walking up to people and without warning, saying to them, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever noticed that almost none of those people ever ask for their sins to be forgiven? It's interesting that that's what Jesus leads with. Now, I've heard it said that this moment, this moment of the cross, is when, when God is in total solidarity with humanity, the suffering, the crucified God, and yet that forgiveness is God's first word from the cross is totally at odds with us. Because forgiveness, if we ever offer it, is usually the second word. We want amends to be made. We want someone to apologize, and then, only then, if we forgive, is when we forgive. But forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom. Forgiveness, as Dolly Parton says, is all there is. And it is also the hardest thing we are ever asked to do. St. Augustine was a, a preacher and a theologian in the 4th century, and he preached the sermon on forgiveness. And during it, he, he ridiculed his people because he said, I've been listening to you every week when we say the Lord's Prayer, and I've heard what you're omitting. Every time they got to the... Forgive us our trespasses, Lord, as we forgive those who trespass against us. They had stopped saying it. They just paused and waited for the next line to come. Why? He said, because you all know that if you say it, you're lying. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We forgive because we're forgiven. It's all there is, and it's the hardest thing in the world. And maybe that's why Jesus preached about it so much. That's why he told so many stories and parables about grace, tossed forgiveness everywhere he went, even on the cross with nails in his hands, thieves at his sides. Before asking anything for himself, he asks something for us. Forgive them, Father. They do not know what they're doing. 
Our king of kings rules not with an iron fist, but with an open hand. The first word of the kingdom is forgiveness. Now, if that were all, if that were the end of the story, it would still pop every circuit breaker in our minds. It would leave us scratching our heads. We don't deserve it one bit. Frankly, we deserve nothing, but we get everything. But the story isn't over. The first word is forgiveness, a prayer within the Trinity. And then Jesus addresses the criminals on the side. The one who was forever accused of consorting with criminals now hangs next to one. The one who ate with sinners now dies with them. So the first thief says, come on, king of the Jews, it's miracle time. Save yourself. Save us. And the other replies, aren't you afraid? We deserve exactly what we're getting, but he's done nothing wrong. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I've always found this moment to be so strange. What is the thief doing? Is he confessing his sin? Maybe, at the very least, he owns up to getting what he deserves. But confession has nothing to do with getting forgiven. It's not a transaction. It's not a negotiation. Confession is nothing more than the after the last gasp we make when we know the truth of who we are and whose we are. We don't confess to get forgiven. We confess because we are forgiven. Forgiveness surrounds us. It beats upon our lives constantly. Preachers like me shout it every week. We sing about it in our songs. We pray for it. And miracle of miracles, we get it. We're forgiven. Perhaps the thief is bold to ask Jesus to remember him because he was the first person to hear Jesus' first word from the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. It was almost 100 years ago that God's church needed the first Christ the King Sunday. Needed it deep in their bones. A day set apart to remember that the lordship of Christ outshines the most powerful of dictators, the most depressing of depressions. I think today we need it just as much. We need Christ the King Sunday because it reminds us that if Jesus Christ is Lord, then Joe Biden is not. If Jesus Christ is Lord, then Donald Trump is not. It reminds us, it beats upon us that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It forces us to confront the strange reality that our king rules from the cross. It compels us to hear the good news, the very best news, the strangest news we will ever hear, but we need hear it every week. Christ died for us while we were sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.